This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to UC Santa Barbara's Innovator Story Series. I'm John Greathouse. You can follow me on Twitter at John Greathouse. We have Heather Hochrein with us today. She is the founder and the CEO of EV Match. Heather has a grand vision. We like to bring people in that have a grand vision. Her goal or her vision is to drive, is to create an inclusive clean energy economy. That's a big vision. To this end, she started EV Match, which has created a, peer, a national peer-to-peer network of electric vehicle charging stations. She's well-versed in clean technology. Before she started EV Match, she spent over five years in leadership positions with Rising Sun Energy Center, where she managed their innovative um, innovation programs as well as a team of 25 people. She holds a bachelor's in molecular environmental biology from UC, Santa, from UC Berkeley. I don't even know what that means, so I'm going to ask her what that means. And she also got an emphasis in, during her undergraduate career in human and environmental health. We're very proud that she came to UC Santa Barbara, and she earned her master's degree in energy and climate from the Bren School here um, at UC Santa Barbara. Let's give her a very, very warm welcome. So I've been told my introductions are too long, so I tried to shorten. You have many more accomplishments, which I left off, but we will get to those, I'm sure, as we chat. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I always like to hear with entrepreneurs kind of what your what your personal life was like, and as you were growing up, so because it's so divergent, right? There's, there's there's so many paths to entrepreneurship. Did you come from a startup family? Was it, or did your siblings take that path? What did your folks do? Yeah, great question. So no, I did not come from a startup um, family or really even an entrepreneurial background. Um, my father is a uh, or was a civil engineer for the U.S. Forest Service, oh, and my mom um, was a teacher, a uh, third grade teacher. And um, so they both worked for the government. <laughs> Quite right. different. My parents too. Um, so they did not, you know. Um, really focus on kind of business. But I would say that their focus was largely on, with my father, with um, the environment. Mm -hmm. And so we lived in a rural town in Northern California, Quincy, California, Mm -hmm. um, which is about a 5,000 population town. Um, So very small. What's the nearest larger town that we would know? uh, Reno, Nevada, or Truckee, California. So some people know Quincy because of skiing, the proximity Mm -hmm. to uh, Lake Tahoe. And one of your accomplishments I left off was you skied at Berkeley. Yeah, I was on the Cal Ski Team. So I skied um, Giant Slalom and Slalom. Um, So I would say that that kind of um, emphasis on environmental protection was really important. Um, And so some of the components of my career path I certainly see coming from my parents. Mm -hmm. Um, But starting a company was not one of them. Um, That said, they've been extremely supportive. They're investors in my company. Um, And so it's really wonderful to see that, even though that was not their career path. Mm -hmm. So what was your, so think about when you were um, a kid, like maybe junior high age, what was your dream job? Like, what did you think you would be doing? Yeah, I was thinking about that, and it, it definitely changed throughout my um, my life. I think as an early child, I wanted to be an author. I loved uh, reading, and I loved writing. Yep. And then later in life, I even in high school, I think I thought I would be a scientist, um, and that also was the case in college. Mm. Um, so you mentioned I have a degree in molecular environmental biology. What is that? I still don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically biology with um, a big focus on molecular biology, but then kind of understanding how that fits into the broader context all the way up to the ecological level. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so I took, um, you know, organic chemistry, molecular biology, but also um, toxicology. So mm -hmm. kind of a variety yeah. of components that could, you know, a lot of people were pre-med majors. Um, I didn't want to go to med school, but I thought I might do public health or um, be a field biologist. <laughs> so I, I didn't know, but I did know that I was interested in environmental problem solving and um, how the human, how humans and the environment interact, mm -hmm. and sort of how that intersection occurs, and how the environment really impacts people's health. Mm -hmm. And so that was um, always an interest of mine. And even now, my work with, um, you know, reducing carbon emissions and air pollution, that clearly has a human and environmental health component. Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting that oftentimes what people, their dream job, we think of them as silly, like firemen, but there's sometimes there's underlying. Like you said writer. I've had people say, well, I, you know, I wanted to produce film. I wanted to be a filmmaker. And then mm -hmm. as we talk, we find out that they ended up producing some films. Or, you know, it mm -hmm. comes back in some way. Like maybe you're, you're yeah. in the midst of a startup, so you've got that focus. But maybe later in life when you have a little bit of time to breathe, you know, some of that might come back. You might end up doing the, the writing that you yeah, thought you Yeah, maybe I'll write a book. I would love to read it and I'll have you come back and we'll talk about it. Um, but so you're 22. You've got this great degree from a great school. You're a high-achieving athlete. Um, what what did you think your life plan was at that point? So you, I talked about you were you know you, you did take a job where you had some environmental experience, but I'm just mm -hmm. curious what again a lot of these folks are going going to graduate. What, yeah. what did you what were you kind of thinking in your senior year at 22? I was thinking about the recession. Yeah, it was 2009, and everybody was worried about getting a job, mm -hmm. and a lot of people who graduated with a degree from UC Berkeley were not getting mm -hmm. jobs. Um, and so that was a huge concern of, am I going to have a job at all, let alone a job that is interesting and relevant? Um, so I was lucky enough to have had two previous summer, um, they weren't internships, they were paid summer jobs mm -hmm. um, in, in Berkeley, working for a nonprofit running energy efficiency programs where we employed young adults to do energy and water conservation audits. Mm -hmm. And so because of that previous work experience during the summer, um, and I had done well in those, in those roles, I was offered a full-time job um, immediately starting after graduation. And so while this sector maybe wasn't exactly what I was thinking I would do, this was energy, this was energy efficiency, yeah, right. um, it was nonprofits, I thought I would do more of like a direct science path, this was a good opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, and there was clearly some leadership opportunities with it, and I thought it was an interesting field. Um, and so I took it. But at that time, I was really happy to have a job. Yep. But you, but you didn't sacrifice that, that bigger dream of getting into, in, you know, making sure that you were in a sustainable, environmentally friendly position. Certainly. Um, and I'm so glad you said that. And, and I did not set this up with Heather. But I'm such an advocate for students finding work experience while they're in school mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons. And, and, and the way you stated that was just perfect. And you never know where it's going to lead. And if you don't take that opportunity to make those networks, make those connections, get that experience, get the reference, right? Yeah, you you yeah. probably got that job. You know, you were you were at the head of the pack with that, even in that horrible recession, because yep. other folks didn't have that experience. So Absolutely, I'm, I'm so glad. And, and uh, the executive director of that organization. Um, saw my potential yeah. early on, continually gave me leadership opportunities, nice. um, put me in charge of a program running, um, you know, I was managing, like, like you said, at 1.25 staff mm -hmm. and um, multi-million dollar contracts with the utilities. 
And I was, you know, 24 years old. Nice. So I think having people that see your potential and believe in you and mm -hmm. having those people as mentors mm -hmm. is really important. Yep. And so my supervisor, um, the executive director at the time, is continually a mentor to me, mm. and uh, we're still in close touch. Wow, you're hitting all my notes. It's perfect. <laughs> I love it. Um, so, so you worked at Rising Sun for I think about six years, right? I think I, yeah. I, I, it depends if you count undergrad as well. So five. Actually, plus. seven seven years, including undergrad. Okay, so including yeah. the undergrad experience. Um, why did you leave for the masters? Again, I get that question mm -hmm. in office hours all the time. Should I get a master's degree? And sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes it's no, depending on what the person wanted, wants to get out of it. Right. But in your case, what was the motivation? And I'd love to feel like, did that motivation get met? So yeah. as long as you walk yeah. into it with expectations, it's still a good experience, but you necessarily your expectations weren't right. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, my motivation was to really increase my knowledge and technical knowledge within the energy and renew renewable energy and clean technologies field. Mm -hmm. And I felt that I would get that in my professional career, but it would take longer. Mm. And so I wanted to expedite that learning process. Um, it, so were you an eco-entrepreneur? Yes. Oh, that was your sub-discipline. Okay. Yes. So I got the eco-entrepreneurship focus. And that's why you, you guys do a project and mm -hmm. you know, I guess all the students do a project, but... Is that correct still? Yeah. So you All can, the students do a project, but yours is focused on... Well, you you either do a client project or you do an eco-entrepreneurship mm, project. So it. a client project, it's like a Working consulting with a team. Yeah, yeah. You work for you know NRDC might right. be a client or the Sierra Club, um, and you work on a project with a group of people and you have a right. deliverable. Um, that's usually analyzing data that's been collected yep. by other people. Yep. Whereas with the eco-entrepreneurship project, you get to come up with a business model and much, test it and iterate. Better. Um, and so I thought that that was a really uh, unique opportunity. Yep. Um, you were smart. So I, you were so smart. I took that. It was, it was and it is, and look where you are now. And it also gave me the opportunity to focus on what I wanted to learn. Mm -hmm. So I could design my project to be around electric vehicles, and there was no client project at the time that was on that subject. Right. Again, and that's there's so many downsides of startups, but one of the upsides is you get to you get to do what you want to do, right? Yeah. You get to say, yeah. well, I'm going to focus on this, and then today I'm going to do this. And then on the downside is you have to do everything. <laughs> but there's lots of upsides, too. So when you were in, you mentioned that you had that pivotal sort of dinner with your parents, and they're like, what's going to happen, Heather? When do you think, and looking back, it's maybe imperfect, but what's your best recollection as to when you said, hey, this is more than a project. I really think I can make this a business. I think it was probably... Um, midway through my second year in grad school, okay. um, and so we'd been working. And on it's the, a two-year program for people that mm -hmm. don't know. So she was, she was. All, you were three fourths of the way done. Yeah, yeah. And we had been working on the idea for oh, about a year, and I think we just got so much interest. And it wasn't just EV drivers; it was industry experts mm -hmm. and investors and consumers, and it felt like there was too much momentum around this idea to let it stop. Um, and I wanted to see what, what we could do with it. Mm -hmm. And did you do the new, new venture competition? Mm -hmm. I thought yeah. you did. So okay. we placed third in okay. the new venture competition. Um, Again, something else I advocate with these folks in this room, it's such a great opportunity to get to really learn what it's, what it's like to launch a business. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so that was helpful. We, we competed actually at UC Berkeley in a clean, um, like, clean cup, or it was like the Clean Tech University Cup. Mm -hmm. um, we, won, we won some prize money there. We won some prize money from NBC. We, I got a fellowship from UC Santa Barbara. So we had enough mm. money at the graduating to feel like we could 
build a basic prototype of the Did software. Did some of your early investors come, or were they initially exposed to you through the MVC? A few of them, but I'd say more of them actually through an accelerator program that we okay. did. Because I know a couple, we won't name them. I know a couple of your investors, and I thought maybe they yeah. that's where they saw Actually, you. you're right. One of them did. Yeah, I yeah. Think I, know. I know who you're talking about. I know who that is. <laughs> All right. Let's take the first uh, student's question. Hi, Heather. I'm Daniel. Um, I just wanted to ask what aspect of EV matches two-sided market was more difficult to build up? Uh, getting enough people to become charging hosts or gaining customers to download the app? Yeah, so you really hit the challenges of a two-sided marketplace. You have two different uh, customer segments that you have to address, and it's kind of a chicken or egg problem. Um, I would say that we have struggled to um, get the suppliers, so to get the hosts um, has been more difficult than attracting drivers. And what we found is as we have more suppliers on the platform, it's easier to attract the drivers, and there's more organic growth among the EV drivers. So we've actually invested more of our marketing and sales resources into getting attracting suppliers. Um, and I think that that is not surprising, but we also have to optimize the location of our suppliers and ensuring that once we do have the hosts on the platform, then we market to drivers in the correct areas. Um, so there's certainly a, an optimization problem that will continually be something that we're working on as we so go. So the, the Forbes article that I wrote that was very popular, um, well. and it's funny, I had a friend say, I, I was reading this article, it's really good, and then I saw at the bottom you wrote it. Because if you Google <laughs> Tesla, Tesla road trip or something, it gets, it's up there, yeah. right? So I didn't go into gory detail in the article because I didn't want to sound like a complete idiot, but I almost, my battery almost completely died on the highway. So the way it works yeah. with the Tesla is stuff just starts shutting down. Mm -hmm. And because I was a novice, it was the first yeah. road trip I'd ever taken. And that's like, you don't do that. Like you don't run your battery to zero. Like we're so used to cars, you know, the gas, you know, you, you look at the gas gauge, you're like, oh, I have an eighth of a tank. I'm fine. Oh, I'm almost empty. I'm fine. And you pull in and fill it up. That is not the right way to do a road trip in a, mm -hmm. an electric vehicle. And so I, so I wrote an article about that. And the response was tremendous. I mean, I think yeah. there's still a lot of, of misinformation and lack of education about the proper use and the proper planning of a road trip. You really have to plan it quite differently. Yeah, absolutely. So it is, but that's a good analogy with, uh, with the phone battery, because we've all been there watching your phone die, or you're on the phone with somebody, and you're like, ah, it's going to go. Yeah. yeah. But I had the same experience. I have a, a Bolt, a Chevy Bolt, mm -hmm. and I, I've been driving it to and from the Bay Area, which is a long trip in an electric car because yeah, um, you right. have to stop a couple times. And so on my last trip coming home, I was really cutting it close. And I think I got here to campus, and I live downtown, and it started flashing, yeah. and stuff yeah. started it's shutting It's like, not down. kidding. <laughs> and I was thinking, well, if it really died right now, it wouldn't be the worst thing. Right. But it would be very embarrassing. Right. Well, my, my <laughs> wife is here, and she can testify that I actually missed the exit for the charging station as the car was dying. I'm like, no! <laughs> so I had to turn around, and I was like, oh my gosh, I don't want to have to call AAA and say, can you tow my electric vehicle? But we made it, yeah. but barely. It is, it is very um, angst-ridden. So let's yeah. talk about what EV Match is. We talked about kind of how your path came, you know, you came to this opportunity. Explain what, what is meant when I say a peer-to-peer -peer national charging network. What does that really mean? Yeah. So what we offer is a um, software platform, both web and mobile applications, that allow people to rent out their private charging stations. So that could look like a home charging station that they've installed for personal use or a business charging station. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have a platform that connects both those suppliers and EV drivers 
drivers who need more charging, and we provide reservations, payment processing, access control features, um, and now some unique user group management features that's mm -hmm. designed for like multifamily properties in particular. Okay. Um, and so really what we're doing is bringing privately owned charging infrastructure into public use to make it easier for, for people to make the shift to electric. And so we really specifically designed the service to help renters and multi-unit right, dwellers and right. folks who don't have home charging um, even consider buying or, or leasing an electric mm -hmm. car. We'll talk about the pivot. It's not only a pivot, but we'll talk about the change in your emphasis in your business in a minute. Um, but it, it, I'd be curious to understand how your approach differs from other folks. Because there are a lot of, it's a big problem. Mm -hmm. It's an obvious problem. A lot of people are trying to solve it. How does your approach differ from some of the others that are out there? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a few um, obviously well-known providers like Tesla has the Tesla supercharger network or some other providers like EVgo or ChargePoint provide fast charging services. I'd say in general those... But that's a proprietary network, Yeah, right? so there's a couple differences. But one, that's a kind of top-down, very infrastructure-heavy uh, approach where you build the charging stations, you operate them. Um, and you you spend a lot of time kind of doing real estate development, mm -hmm. so site selection and development. Um, and a lot of those networks, like you said, are proprietary. Tesla is only available to Tesla vehicles. Yep. Um, ChargePoint has proprietary hardware that only works with their software, mm. so it, it's kind of the Apple approach. Um, and so a couple differences about our service. One, we are leveraging existing infrastructure or underutilized infrastructure and bringing it together in a network um, taking more of a kind of a Google approach where we're integrating with different hardware manufacturers mm -hmm. um, as opposed to manufacturing our own hardware. Right. And then really kind of opening up all of these, these previously undiscovered charging locations. Um, and so that's the peer-to-peer -peer component where we're bringing in these private chargers that were not publicly available and we provide this seamless payment processing platform that allows people to to easily monetize their private mm -hmm. assets. Right. And have in, in, with the safety factor and all the other things. Yeah, so, and so that's pretty different, the idea of peer-to-peer -peer charging. Right. Um, and we're really the first in the US that there's a few other companies throughout the world, maybe there's one in Europe, one in Australia, one in Canada, um, but really we were the first to launch commercially with that model. Mm. Um, but then the other component when you think about competitors is that there's the fast charging services like Tesla, right. but then there's um, what we offer is level two charging. So that's a, it's not as fast as a supercharger, but it's faster than a regular outlet. Mm. So it still takes several hours to charge an electric vehicle. Right. Um, and so where our solution fits really well is at hotels, at homes, near, at businesses, yep. at workplaces. So somewhere where you're spending multiple hours. Yep. Um, and what we offer is a reservation system. So you can book in advance and know exactly where Which you're going to charge. Which and is that huge. is unique. Um, that, and that's the only, we're the only service provider with reservations. That's fantastic. That was one of the strategies we took after we did our second road trip was, okay, we have to stay at places that have a Tesla yep. charging system, but you don't know if they're going to be full. Right. So you right. pull in at 9 o'clock at night, and you're like, wonderful, all four of them are Taken, what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. so, no, but being able to reserve it takes away that anxiety because mm -hmm. it, it's not just I'm not going to run out. It's like, can I get in? Is there going to be a slot for me? It's yeah. not like a gas station where you just wait in line and then fill up. Right. Um, so I'm wondering if if you could think again. These are hard. These are it's hard to be exact about this. But if you think back to your first year, first years are tough. Is there one thing that you wish you would have known on day one that you didn't figure out until later? What is something you were like, yeah, mm -hmm. that would have been nice to know. Yeah. There's so many things. Well, give me, give me more than one. <laughs> um, 
I think one thing is understanding that it's okay to make mistakes mm -hmm. and it, maybe not agonizing over every decision as much as, as I did at the beginning. Is that something that is sort of in your personality or did you feel that way because it was a startup and you just didn't want to, you took money and you didn't want to lose people's money? Yeah, or? a little bit of that or feeling like there's so much at stake here. Right. There's a lot of risk that you feel like you don't want to do anything wrong and that that could kill your business, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I think having a little bit of faith in your intuition mm -hmm. and and then also just becoming a better decision maker over time mm -hmm. um, is, is a learned skill. But I think having that um, willingness to just make a decision and, and know that it might be the wrong decision. You'll figure it out. Yeah. Right. That would be one thing I would, I would tell myself. I think that bias to actions is really good advice because, in a, and again, in the startup world, you're not going to be right. You're probably going to be wrong most of the time. But if you're course correcting quickly what you mm -hmm. realize you're wrong, and find what's right, then you're going to be okay. Yeah. If you agonize and agonize and agonize, the rest of the market is just going to leave you behind. Yeah. And it takes it takes too long. You can't spend yeah. that much time, no. you know, analyzing everything, reading all the research. Right. Sometimes you just have to try something. You know, the first time I heard your idea, you know, it's like I didn't know your idea. I just heard like probably some probably that first investor or one of your early investors, right? What the analogy I came up with, or sort of the match I did, was I said that reminds me of. In San Francisco, people would rent out their driveways when they were at work because parking is such a premium in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. do, do you feel like that's sort of a fair, rough analogy of the peer-to-peer -peer side of yeah. what you're doing? Yes, I would say it's a fair analogy for the residential peer-to-peer -peer with some added components um, around kind of the complexity of calculating electricity prices right. and displaying that information accurately. Um, but, but yeah, absolutely. Because it kind of felt like it was either there's a spot, there isn't a spot, what are they going to charge? You know, mm -hmm. I, don't, I need the spot today so you can't park there. To, I mean, it's very logistic heavy. Yeah. I think that what's, what's nice about the moment we're in right now is there's a lot of companies to look at and learn from. And so we are constantly looking at, well, how did Airbnb do this? Or how does Uber do it? Right, or right. how did Zipcar do it? And we're even thinking about that right now with building in, for example, penalties if people overstay their reservation. Mm. Um, and those penalties you know, influence user behavior. Big time. So especially if they're significant yeah. penalties. And Zipcar really figured that out. And Tesla too. And Tesla, yeah, their like, idle fees. Like, they oh, start after five minutes, right? If your car is charged and you're not moving, they, yeah. So it's really nice to be able to look at some of those other business models and see what they've learned, what they've implemented. Um, I think that it's nice given that, you know, I think about a decade ago or, or two decades ago, you didn't have those kind of companies to look at. And so right. entrepreneurs were really figuring all those things out um, from scratch. Are tough, right? Because if you have too, many, you know, too much demand on one side and not enough supply on the other, people are going to stop using it. Mm -hmm. I mean, Uber was, they had as many reasons why they succeeded, but excuse me, one of them was they were very regional. Like they rolled it out very regionally. Mm -hmm. And really concentrated on Austin, concentrated on Santa Barbara or whatever. Um, and I think you, you almost have to do that when you have a, a, a dual system. And I know you're mm -hmm. doing some work in Colorado, which yeah. we'll talk about in a second. But we're primarily in California and yeah. then the Denver, Boulder area. Well, that fits into my next question. So I think everyone needs more education about, including me, obviously. Everyone needs more education about working with an EV. But what do you think the most, or what are some of the myths that you see around charging or around owning an EV? Yeah, I love that you asked this. We are we do the blog weekly blog. You have a great blog. And one of them today is like three myths about EVs. Oh, okay. So, I should just read the um, blog. Yeah. <laughs> no, it hasn't come out yet. I need to read it after this interview. Um, so a couple myths. One is that um, I think people don't always understand how long it takes to charge. Um, 
but also that gets exaggerated and people will say, well, there's literally nowhere to charge. So mm-hmm. I think you know, there, there's a learning curve with driving an electric car, but um, there's also maybe not understanding of the difference between fast charging you know, level one, two, and three charging. So, so for example, uh, level one charging is using a standard outlet. Right. And a lot of people don't know you can actually charge an electric car with a regular 110 volt outlet. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people do that at home. Um, and so I remember I used to charge at home and my neighbors would walk by and would ask me about it. Like, oh, I had no idea you could plug your car into the side of your wall. Right. Um, so that's one. I would say other people um, think that EVs don't work in the cold. So we get a lot of myths about it. And there it. were early issues. And there are battery performance um, components, right. but there's just a lot of kind of misinformation that's out there that says flat out EVs just don't work in the cold. Mm. Um, but you look at the uptick of I EV. wonder who would be putting that misinformation out. I wonder. I wonder. Mm. Uh, maybe the Koch brothers. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you look at the uptick of EVs in Norway, for example, mm. and it's obvious that EVs do work in the cold. Right. Um, and so as we've expanded beyond California, which you know we're primarily in Southern California and the Bay Area, pretty moderate climates, um, we've had to tackle that myth quite a bit. Well, let's talk about Boulder, because I, I was going to save it for later, but what, what have you learned there, and what have you learned that you can take into other colder markets? Yeah. Um, well, that a lot of education is required around you know, how do you operate an EV when it's cold? What are, what are the ideal conditions? Um, I think a lot of people want to know what percentage battery um, or range reduction will they get. Mm-hmm. And what is it? But, so it um, I would say it can, be, it can be as high as 20 to 30%, um, but most of it is using the cabin heat. So it's right. kind of like Makes how sense. willing are you to be cold? Right. And that's why the Tesla was shutting down on me. They were like, you don't need the radio. You don't need yeah. So when I drive from here to San Francisco, I don't use any AC or heat. Mm. And so in the summer, that's not super comfortable. But right. it allows me, it actually saves me like an extra hour. Oh, okay. Um, so I don't have to stop and charge. Does it take longer to charge when it's colder? Um, it can, yes. Yeah. Can. Particularly at, um, at high speeds, so fast charging. Mm, okay. So I think one thing that it was super obvious, but I had to figure it out, was you don't have to fill it up. It's not like a car right, where you right. fill up the gas. Because we're just so prone to like, well, I'm here, don't want it up, right? Whereas with an EV, you know, like say you're going to LA, it's 90 miles, 180 miles around trip. If you have 200 miles or 220, you're probably yeah. okay. Yeah. You don't need 375 yeah. or you don't need, don't need that extra. And, and a lot of people don't realize the, and I'm no expert in battery design or, or physics, but that last 10, 20% takes a lot longer mm-hmm. than the other 70 or 80%, mm-hmm. just because of the way the batteries distribute the, the electricity. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, if you're doing a road trip, you kind of want to optimize where you're just charging up to 80%, mm. and then you're going along your way, and then charging again. Because, like you said, that last bit takes a much longer. Right. But that, our mindset is fill it up. You know, right. we just have that fill up mindset. So I think that'll, that'll change. But, uh, yeah. well, that, that fits with another question of just as idle curiosity. But somebody that thinks about this all day long, like you, this is your world. <laughs> and I know this isn't your specialty, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on what do you think is going to happen to all the petroleum-based gas stations? Yeah. Well, I don't know, but I think there's a lot of opportunity for repurposing that space. And that could look... I think some of it might turn into city parks, for example. Mm. You know, a lot of this, these gas stations are in 
um, open spaces. They're, you know, they, they could be repurposed. Um, you also could imagine that they would be other retail locations um, or that they will be fast charging stations mm. that then have more amenities because people spend more time when they're charging their vehicle, right, right. you know, maybe you an hour. Eat, you so you'll have restaurants, coffee shops, you'll have, you know, internet. They might be more of kind of a hub that has Wi-Fi and you bring your laptop and you do work and you charge. So I could see that. Um, but I do think there will be a, a we won't need as many gas stations, um, or, you know, because people are, are going to be charging at home mm -hmm. and you're going to be charging at work. And so this idea of having these kind of dedicated places that are only for fueling your vehicles, we, we won't have to have as much of that infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So I think there's an opportunity to repurpose that land for other you know, other activities. So I, I, I bring that up because I was curious. And also, there's a cycle in entrepreneurship that's gone on since the dawn of time, which is a new innovation comes in, solves a new, you know, solves some problems, but it always creates new problems or creates mm -hmm. new opportunities. So an entrepreneur, you might be sitting in the audience saying, well, I don't know anything. I didn't go to Berkeley and I don't know molecular human type of, you know, engineering and how can I play in this field? Well, just think of things like that. Like what are going to happen to all the gas stations? Like maybe you could be the person that starts to repurpose these things in a very innovative uh, and appealing way. Or the mm -hmm. same with retail. Like we could bemoan the fact that Amazon's destroyed retail, or we can say, well, how do we ch how do we leverage that? These 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 buildings, these malls, they're in opportune places. Typically, um, they're places that large population centers can get to relatively easily. What else can we do with them? So we know in Santa Barbara, uh, Amazon's moving into an old Macy's. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. it's an old Macy's that just couldn't cut it because of the online business, and now we have a, a great high tech company here in town. So, anyway, it's for you, it's for folks like you to uh, figure it out. We'll take the next student's question. Hi, Heather. Thank you for being Hi. here. A commonly held capitalist belief is that the free market will be able to produce novel solutions to the impending disasters predicted by climate change. As the CEO of an innovative company interested in environmental protection, do you agree with this sentiment? That, I like that question. <laughs> I'd like to say, can, do you mind, what do you think? Um, personally, I think that we can't trust the free market to I suspected fix, that. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I'm open to, I mean, I don't know much, so I'd really like to hear from people that do. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I was just, just curious. Yeah. I mean, I, would, I agree with you that I don't think the free market will solve all of our environmental problems. Um, and even though I run a private company, um, and I think that we have a very innovative solution, I, I certainly don't think that the um, corporate sector is the end-all, be-all solution. Yeah. Um, with that said, I think that business and corporations have really been stepping up yeah. as it comes yeah. to uh, climate change mitigation, particularly in the absence of strong federal policy. So in the absence of a carbon tax or a cap-and-trade system at the national level, you see huge corporations that are making really aggressive commitments to um, renewable energy procurement to electrification, um, interesting you know, water recycling techniques, a variety of different components um, that improve their sustainability. So I think that there's a place for corporate innovation and the private sector to come up with novel solutions, but I also think that that has to be in tandem with um, really thoughtful state and federal policy about, you know, in this case, carbon emissions, but really environmental policy in general, and um, really developing systems to um, account for these externalities um, that, that currently 
you know, there's a lot of pollution, there's a lot of activities that the corporate sector is um, contributing to society and not necessarily paying for. Yeah, I know you didn't ask me, but I'll throw my two cents. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't believe in conspiracies and cabals and, and you know, that there's this powerful forces, but I do believe in, in, in people that have vested interests, right? And I do believe that there's you know, huge corporations that have a stand a lot to lose. Mm -hmm. So I think in the short term, it, it's not really a free market. You know, when you have those power, powerful, very um, wealthy entities that don't want to lose the existing business, right? So, and, and every entrepreneur faces this, but it's various levels, right? The incumbents mm -hmm. never want to give up their business. Right. They don't walk up to you and say, hey, here you go, here's 10% of, of my business. You have to earn it, right? You have to earn it from the consumers. But I think in the short term, there is some room for just to make sure they play fair. Speaking of which, what do you mm -hmm. think about the states that have not allowed Tesla dealerships to open? I mean, when I read about that, I was shocked. There's actually states that yeah. have made laws that say you can't open a Tesla dealership in my state. And I won't name the state, but there's one state that if you buy a Tesla, uh, you know, so let's say it's shipped from California, when it enters that state, they have to cover the, the, the truck so that it doesn't, as it goes across the highway, people don't know that somebody bought a Tesla. I mean, that's extreme. And, and when we talk about a free market, too, we don't live in a free market. You look at the subsidies that we have for oil and gas. Um, this is not you know, even playing field that we're currently operating in. Um, so I think that when it comes to state policy, there's a huge variety in the policies in place and how states are viewing transportation electrification. Um, some states are more, um, there's more opposition yep. and some are embracing it, like California, which has a goal to have 5 million EVs on the road by 2030. How um, many are there now? About uh, 900,000. So we got a ways to go, doable. but it's, it's, it's feasible. Yeah. Um, and California is known for setting really aggressive goals and then achieving those, and that, that often kind of uh, sets a, the tone for other states or allows other states to see what's, what's possible. Mm -hmm. And so I always appreciate that. Um, but I think to your point about some states having these, these rules, I mean, there's a huge uh, lobby from the automotive industry, and they've always had a dealer model, and they want to hold on to that sales model. And they're, um, you know, seeing a threat with Tesla's direct sales model, which is very effective right. um, and actually is, is critical, I think, for selling electric cars because there is a big customer education component to an electric vehicle. Mm -hmm. and, and historically, dealers are not well trained on how to sell an electric car, how to answer these questions yeah. about charging and onboard charger rates. And, um, you know, there's, there's some complexity to it. And so Tesla's done exceptionally well at training their salespeople. They're... You know, they actually work for Tesla, right. and they are motivated by the manufacturer to sell the vehicle. So I think it's unfortunate that that's been a barrier, but it is changing. Um, and people, luckily, want these cars. Right. And because right. they're such um, staunch advocates for the cars themselves, the consumers want to have the laws changed. Right. It'll change. It's, I look at it like Uber when they try to get into the East Coast cities with the cab companies. They won because yeah. people want. It wasn't because... It wasn't anything other than people said, that's ridiculous, I want to take an Uber. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. You know, if there's consumer demand. I don't want a stinky cab. The and, rules you know, will change. So they got in. Well, what, what, else, what also is ironic about these states is they're the most free market states in our country. Right, right. It's like, well, if you're really a free market state, then why are you keeping Tesla out? Yeah. Like, why don't you just let them open up there? You're talking about te Texas. I don't want to name any states. <laughs> I was going to say, you're talking about Texas. I love it. I love that state. And I do. 
<laughs> and, and, and my personal experience with, with uh, Tesla, I had a couple of former students at the dealership, and they were, it was fantastic. Yeah. It was a different experience. It's a different experience. So when people get a flavor for that, I didn't like that they wouldn't let me haggle, but mm. most people like But you can buy online. Most people like that they don't haggle. Yeah. That was just me. I, I, so I do a lot of EV car shopping personally, because I did get a new car recently, but also for the experience, and mm-hmm. I'll you know, go drive different cars and um, ask the sales reps questions about charging and it's very interesting to see the the difference between a tesla um representative and and other dealers so if you're comfortable do you mind saying what because i think people would be curious somebody who's an expert in this industry like what car did you end up going with yeah so i have a chevy bolt um, and previously i had a volt which is a plug-in hybrid uh had 53 miles of electric range and then it also has a a gas engine but i wanted to make the jump to all electric so that was a lease a three-year lease and so when that was up this summer i um, chose the bolt i i test drove a model three but it was uh, a little out of my price range at the moment yeah i also drove the hyundai kona the nissan leaf um, a couple of the Kia Nero. So I really wanted like a long range battery electric vehicle. Right. Um, and the Bolt has been great. Yeah. I think when Tesla finally gets that price point down, it's yeah. the floodgates are going to open. Hi, Heather. I wanted to know, as someone without a formal business education background, how were you able to set your plan into motion and build a team with the knowledge to make your vision for this company a reality? What has been your hardest obstacle to date with the company? Yeah, so I don't have a formal business degree, as you said, um, and that has been a challenge to some extent. I think I'm often um, learning things as I go (laughs) because I haven't had formal training, though I will say that my uh, master's degree, it wasn't a master's, it wasn't an MBA, it was a master's in environmental science and management. I did choose classes that had kind of a business focus. So for example, I took new venture finance. Um, I took a lot of economics classes. I took a marketing class, but it was all around sustainability. So how do you sell sustainable products, for example? Um, So I did get some of that formal training in graduate school, which was helpful, particularly the finance components. And then, A lot of it I learned in my previous work experience. So working for five years in management roles at a nonprofit, even though it wasn't a for-profit company, I learned about contract negotiation. I learned how to manage a budget and manage staff. And a lot of those skills translate um, into for-profit business. And um, also working for a a small nonprofit in many ways is like working for a startup. (laughs) Because we were a small entity, we were growing, we were fundraising, we had to be scrappy. Um, so I think a lot of those skills actually translated quite, quite well. Um, and your second question was around what's been most difficult? Um, and we haven't talked about this yet, but fundraising has been very difficult. Mm-hmm. And raising capital, I think, is difficult for any entrepreneur. Um, it's particularly difficult for female founders and, and first-time entrepreneurs. So that has been something that's more difficult than I ever anticipated. Um, and I know it will continually be a challenge, but... It's something that I am getting better at, and um, I'm certainly learning how to navigate that process along the way. Going back to what what has been challenging from, from a business standpoint, what classes would you have wanted to take? Like more accounting, or what was, where do you think you really yeah. had to learn on the job the most? You mentioned I finance. Would have, I would have taken one, another finance class. Mm-hmm. Or, 
yeah, I, I took one class through TMP, New Venture Finance. Um, mm -hmm. And that was really, or maybe it was called Finance for Entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. yeah. but it was basically how do you uh, do the accounting and yep. the fundraising when you're running a tiny company, which right. is quite different than if you were doing finance for a large well, corporation. For sure. yep. um, and that has proven to be very useful. I think I even referenced back that book yeah, good. from time to time. I would take another finance class. I would have also taken a sales and marketing class. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I teach sales and marketing. Yeah, I find myself trying to learn online a lot about sales and marketing. Yeah. I mean, it's fundamental, like persuasion and influence, what motivates people. Yeah, there's a, it's a rich area of research and, mm -hmm. and fun to read about. Yeah. And for you, it's right down your alley right now yes. because it's fundraising. Yeah. Like when you're fundraising, you're selling. You're selling the future. You're selling your ability to deliver on the future. Yeah, lots of sales. Absolutely. Good stuff. I didn't realize that. <laughs> that fundraising was sales. Yeah, it's all sales. Um, but you have to deliver on it, too, or you'll never raise any more money. So we mentioned earlier that you pivoted, in, and what I mean by that is um, EV Match initially was strictly a peer-to-peer -peer network, or at least you thought that was going to be your vision. And like every business ever, including Uber, which started out as a black car service, you pivoted and just kind of morphed as the market talked to you and told you what they wanted. So talk a little bit about how that came about and then how that's manifested itself. Like, mm -hmm. What is your focus now? Yeah. So like you said, originally it was purely residential, peer-to-peer. -peer. Um, and we still are operating that service yep. and you know it's still growing, but we found that that I think to one of the previous questions, that is a tough business model because you have to have hundreds of thousands of customers to yep. reach profitability. Yep. And so even just at looking at the numbers and our projections and, and in the fundraising process, realize that if we could bring in another revenue stream, a software as a service model, um, we would be that much closer to reaching profitability yep. within uh, you know, And you need to raise years. less money. We'd raise less money. Yep. Um, and also we saw that there was an opportunity to bring this model, a, a lower cost charging solution to businesses and multifamily properties. Well, maybe talk about the pivot a little bit because yeah. I didn't make it clear. So what did you decide to do? So we decided to expand the software platform to enable not only homeowners to list on the platform, but also businesses and apartment complexes, which we deem as commercial um, customers. Mm -hmm. And so in order to do that, we really needed to integrate with hardware. So we had to have a full solution. Um, and so what we did is we integrated with a hardware manufacturer. At the time, they were a startup in the Bay Area. Since then, they've been acquired by an Italian um, utility company mm. at, called NLX. And so they make um, pretty low-cost Wi-Fi-enabled level two charging stations. So this is 240-volt, typically 40-amp hardware. Mm -hmm. Um, about $600, $2,000 for the unit itself. And so that fit with our customer profile because we wanted hardware that was um, relatively affordable but had some um, networking capabilities so we can collect data and we could offer um, access control features. Hmm. So if we want to have reservations at commercial sites, right. we had to be able to turn on and off the chargers. Whereas at a home, it's okay to have it be kind of self-managed right. or managed by the site host. You assume that um, you know, you're not going to have those access control issues in someone's private driveway. But when you have a charger in a public location, you absolutely have to be able to turn it on and off. So um, once we, a couple things. We noticed there was an opportunity. We were getting requests for hosting outside of residential locations. 
And we also had the, the resources, the engineering resources and the capacity to do that hardware integration. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would say that was one of the limitations at the beginning. We just wanted to get something out there yep. and yep. build traction. And so once we finally had the ability to do that next set of engineering requirements, then, then we did. And so we did that this year. Um, and since then, we've expanded to um, commercial properties. Uh, and then in particular, now we're really focused on multifamily residential properties, mm. which are commercial entities. They're typically you know, property management companies right. who own and operate the buildings, yep. but they are residential sites. And the value prop for them is obvious, right? If you're a retail establishment, you're, you're going to draw people into your retail um, shopping center or whatever yeah. it is, mall. And if you're a property manager, it's another sales point to people that wanted to buy an electronic vehicle, but were always like, well, how am I going to charge it? I'm exactly. Like, hey, now. And I noticed here just locally with some of the new um, construction, they have a nice cadre of you know electronic charging stations for mm -hmm. their for their um, either renters or, or homeowners. Yeah. Well, makes total sense. And you told me about a term I'd never heard before, icing. Oh, yeah. And Did I, you, you hadn't heard that? I, well, I'm clueless. But <laughs> I figured as a, as a Tesla driver you would know that. No, I haven't heard that. Maybe explain what it is and then what do you guys yeah. do to try to come I mean, back? it's a super you know, technical term. Some people don't even like EV drivers using it because they seem pretentious. But mm. it's um, internal combustion engine <laughs> ING. So icing is like when an ICE vehicle, a regular gas car, parks in an EV spot and blocks it. And so it's kind of jargon that EV drivers use. But what happened like this last year is people, particularly in Denver, Colorado area, um, big trucks were parking in Tesla spots mm -hmm. and blocking them and did this. I think they did it around Christmas time or it was holiday travel and it was very disruptive mm -hmm. and it garnered a lot of media attention. And then, of course, Tesla drivers were furious and they showed that you can tow like a F-250 <laughs> with a Model X. <laughs> and so they towed the vehicles like, you know, out wow. of place. Of course, the owners were not there. Right. Um, but yeah, icing has become a problem. It's sort of a, um, aggressive behavior um, that people are just blocking these spots to try and make it more difficult to, to own an electric car. So, I mean, if you're doing it on a purpose, that's ridiculous. Like, that's like parking in a handicap so yeah. to protest yeah. handicapped people. Or so. It's like, so, it makes no sense. So in response to that, and this particular issue was really prevalent in, in Denver, the state of Colorado passed a law that now allows um, citations and fines if a, a gas car or truck is parked in an EV-only parking spot. Because previously, you couldn't cite them for that, and you couldn't give them a ticket. And so if you don't have any penalty... Mm. Got you it. know, even I'm though it says EV only. I'm sure some parking. people did it innocently, but if people are doing it on purpose, that's kind There of, was like a whole campaign where people were doing it quite maliciously. That's kind of weird. Um, so now I know, <laughs> so when I want to be pretentious, I just say, oh, you, you're driving an ICE? Yeah. Oh, bye. <laughs> um, I will never do that ever. Yeah. People will get in fights with you on Twitter if you do that. Oh, I promise I won't do that. So something you, you said a couple of things here that are very common with startups is partnering. Um, startups seldom have all the whole solution. Yeah. You just can't, right? Yeah. You can't build everything. So startups in general have to be very partner friendly. Uh, and some companies can pull that off, and it's just not in their DNA for others. Did you feel like that was a nap? Did that come down? I mean, you obviously pulled off some great partnerships. Did that kind of come naturally to, to you and to the company? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's kind of the ethos of the company. And, you know, we're all about collaboration yeah. and you know, peer-to-peer -peer is, is getting individuals as your partners. Right. But um, further to that, we recognize we didn't want to be a hardware company. 
Um, I certainly don't have that expertise. I didn't feel like the the team we were or building the capital had involved. or the capital yeah. at given fundraising is is already hard enough. We right. didn't want to build hardware. Right. So, and why should we? Um, there's a lot of opportunity to simply partner with other companies. Right. So I think, like I said, that's been a really strategic partnership partnership for us with NLX. Um, it's helped us launch into kind of another customer vertical. And what was helpful is we got in with them when they were small mm. and then they've grown. Mm -hmm. And so that's always nice if you can kind of see opportunity with other startups and then support one another. Mm -hmm. um, and so and it gives you validation. When you go out and fundraise, you say, look at our partner list and they can reference you. It just shows, it makes you look bigger than maybe you really are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're still working on that and continuing to develop hardware partnerships. And then the other component I wanted to mention was around utility partnerships. So that I think really for me has been a focus and that was um, coming from my previous work at mm -hmm. Rising Sun Energy Center. So we manage contracts from Pacific Gas and Electric Company and all the municipal utilities in the Bay Area. So I had some familiarity with how utilities contract and what, they, uh, what that process looks like. Mm -hmm. What is that procurement process? Um, and so from day one, you know, you can see the, all the reasons why utilities are interested in this space yep. and they're motivated to get more electric cars on the road. So that's been a big objective of mine is finding um, partnerships with utilities and the process takes a long time. Yes, yes. So luckily we've started years ago and now we're actually seeing, now we're running three different utility pilots. Um, and so that I think that will just be the beginning of, of bigger opportunities yep. there. It's a competitive advantage that you have, that you know that world. I mean, I often advise startups don't deal with the government in the early stages because they're just going to eat up your time and it takes forever. Mm -hmm. But once you're in, it's a great barrier because they're, yeah. they take forever. And so, it takes it, so long. it's going to take your competitors forever <laughs> to catch, kind of catch up with you. Yeah. So good for you that you started that yeah. process early. And, if you, and can, you know how to do it. And if you could get more customer revenue, you don't have to raise as much right. capital from totally. investors. Totally. Um, also, I'm familiar working with municipalities, so early on we got a grant um, with the city of Boulder, mm. and so things like that where you know maybe some other entrepreneurs wouldn't go after municipal or utility money, right. but I felt like I had the expertise to do that. Yeah, good for you. That's hard to do. Um, I want to ask you just a little bit, we're going to take one more student question after this. About your, we mentioned your blog. It is very, yeah. it is just, it's very good content if you're interested at all in this in this space. It's not just sort of self-promotional stuff. Do you do that in-house, or how have you managed your blog? Mm -hmm. Any tips for yeah. other folks that are thinking about creating content? Yeah, so we do write all of our own content. Um, occasionally, we have guest bloggers who are our investors mm -hmm. that I rope into writing blogs for us. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say your, your friend you know. Maybe yes. he'll be writing one. Yeah, maybe he'll write one. Um, but, so we have guest contributors who are our friends and our investors, advisors. Um, but typically our, our sales and marketing lead, he writes all of our content um, with ideas from me and the rest of the team and, mm -hmm. and support uh, in kind of finding interesting news to report on, um, collecting data from our users. Sometimes it's survey data that we report on. Sometimes it's mm -hmm. product reviews. It's a great way to do it. Because you're becoming an ex expert in this field. And eventually, media will start you know, recognizing, oh, EV, if I have a question about where this industry is going, I'm going to call Heather. Yeah. So one, actually, um, I've been thinking about how do you analyze the value of the blog recently. And so we looked at all of our recent blog posts and, and what lists they did well with, because we email it to all of our customer lists. Mm -hmm. um, and we see, OK, does it resonate with our customers or our uh, partners? And what we found is for our customers, really, um, 
product related blogs, like product reviews were extremely uh, mm. well received mm -hmm. and kind of industry um, knowledge. So they really are, our customers and our audience are excited about our level, level of understanding within this sector. Mm -hmm. So we did, for example, a, um, a highlight on the top EV charging stations on our platform. Like, you know, what we, okay, we have thousands of people on this platform. What's the number one charging station listed? Mm. Um, you know, what's, is it Tesla, is it ChargePoint? So we did a breakdown of um, the numbers and we did some graphics and then we uh, did a write-up of, you know, why people chose certain hardware. Um, and we've done the same for solar, we've done the same for home battery storage systems. And so I think people are now seeing EV Match as a source of kind of clean energy information. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could, you, I'm sure this is on your roadmap, you can start feeding that to journalists and then have them write, yeah. you know, you write part of the article and then they wrap around that. Yeah. yeah. And, and it is part of our sales and marketing strategy because we've had a few of those blogs get picked up by Clean Technica, which mm -hmm. is a well-regarded publication for this audience. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, you know, our web traffic just spikes. That's great. Um, and that's basically free advertising. Yeah. So we continue to work um, on this content, one, for um, SEO purposes, two, for garnering kind of media attention, mm -hmm. and then three, for having more engaged customers. So uh, keeping our customers informed, uh, reminding them that we're here, reminding them that we're growing and that they can continually use our service. Yep. So for a business like ours where we want sticky revenue, we want recurring transactions, it's good to always be reminding your customers right. um, that, hey, we're here. Keep them engaged. And fourth, even though they won't admit it, investors are influenced by things like that. Right? They Google <laughs> yeah. and go, wow, look at all these articles. Mm -hmm. Okay, last uh, student's question. Hi, Heather, thank you for being here. Um, what has been the most valuable lesson you've learned from your career as a woman CEO? And what advice would you give to other women who are also aspiring entrepreneurs? Thanks for the question. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think that one thing I've really learned is the importance of thinking big and bold and being audacious and not letting um, maybe expectations or other people's perceptions of you hold hold you back. And so I think that's something that I've, I've grown into and I've leaned into over time. But, but recognizing your potential and recognizing um, that you can have a, a huge impact and really believing in yourself. Um, and I think sometimes women and female leaders will um, potentially hold themselves back by not thinking big enough and not um, really having that vision that and the, the idea that you could do it and actually build it. Um, and so I feel like I'm always a little pushed by my mentors and my, um, my friends and family to even think bigger than we are currently. And that's something that um, I think is, is good advice for any, any woman who is starting their own company or, or wanting a leadership role in business. Great. Right. My last question, it's not a work-life balance question because I know you. there's no such thing as work-life balance in a startup. I, I get that. But the highs are high and the lows are lower. It's just the reality of a startup. That's why we love them. That's why we hate them. How do you, how do you stay sane? Like, how do you stay passionate? Don't burn out? What, do mm -hmm. you, how are you handling that? Because that is yeah. not easy and it's not talked about enough. Yeah, and it is a real, it's a real issue. It, I, I'm glad you mentioned the highs are high and the lows are lows. And that is, is very true that it's very exciting and can be almost addicting, the work. Yep. But then the lows can be just really discouraging and it's hard to stay motivated. Yep. So um, I think having components of your life where you can try and let go and acknowledge that there's other 
um, parts of you that existed before the business and will continue to exist after the business. And people who remind you of that, I think that's mm. important. Because it's easy for me to think of myself as EV Match and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And I need to acknowledge that, no, I'm, I'm a different person. And um, I find being with my friends and my family is helpful. Um, spending time outside. Yeah. I mean, luckily we live in Santa Barbara, right. so right. I spend a lot of time at More Mesa, particularly. More Mesa. Yeah, um, on a stressful day, I'll go out there, go for a walk, go for a run. That helps a lot, even just 30 minutes. Um, and the other thing for me is having, so obviously a supportive partner and, and family, but having the motivation to have an impact. So, you know, this is hard work, mm -hmm. but. I'm really motivated by the impact and the benefits that, that our service will have on the environment and mitigating climate change. And I truly see this as the biggest issue of our generation. And mm -hmm. so for me to feel like I get to contribute to that um, is really a privilege. And that keeps me motivated mm -hmm. to keep doing the work. Well, I love, I mean, I love you ended on that note, but I'm also glad that you mentioned the importance of friends and family because it's some people from television or movies or books they've read, or, they think it's an all or nothing game like I to win in business I've got to be all in and sacrifice you don't have to sacrifice your personal life and and true mm -hmm. success is being successful personally and professionally and I'm glad you've not lost sight of that and I really want everyone to hear that message like, don't lose sight of that even if you end up financially successful you're going to look back and go wow well, why did I do that yeah. yeah there's a lot more to life thank you so much Heather yeah, really, appreciate really appreciate it You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.